This is Hal Hester, lead pastor of Vine Life, and this is our podcast, The Empowered Word. I want to thank you for joining us today. I hope this message inspires you, builds your faith, and gives you perspective on what God is doing in your life. Please enjoy the message. Good morning. Good to see you guys this morning. Hope everyone is doing well. Hope that uh, your new year has started off right. Mine started off really wonderful so far. want to give a big thank you to uh, Jason for filling in last week so my bride and I could get away to celebrate our anniversary. It was a great time. So, yeah. All right. Well, this morning we are going to be in Mark chapter 3. If you want to be opening your Bibles that direction, continuing our series uh, here in the Gospel of Mark, talking about uh, the authority of Jesus this morning. Now, as we pick up here in Mark 3 and dig into the text, I want to remind you of a few things just from the onset uh, that we talked about and just kind of laying out our understanding of the Gospel of Mark. We began the series by pointing out, you know, that each of the Gospels is written a little differently in terms of its order of events, uh, and that, that, you know, oftentimes that throws people off. Why is one Gospel in a different order than the other? And uh, what we were pointing out is that the Gospels are not written in a chronological way. They are written thematically. They are great literature, and so there's always an underlying theme that is being driven home uh, in that message beyond just simply the fact that of Jesus' life, which is, ought to be enough for us, but specifically each book is written to a different audience with different thought in mind and trying to uh, explain, expound. In this case, in the case of the Gospel of Mark, or the biography Mark has written here, uh, the, the primary audience that he's writing to is not a Jewish audience, but instead, it is a Gentile audience. He's writing to uh, Roman, to Greek people, uh, and explaining to them the gospel. It's why it begins where it does, instead of beginning with the birth of Jesus and a lot of lineage, uh, backing up the historical understanding uh, that would have begun uh, all the way back in the Old Testament. Uh, there is no concrete ground for them to share like that. They don't have that shared lineage, history, story, and so it begins in a very different place. And although it begins with a prophecy of Isaiah, very as little is actually said about the larger context of that prophecy. In other words, it's just simply a quick signpost saying that this is bathed in our history. This is bathed in our understanding of uh, who Jesus is. Uh, it's an invitation, but it is not detailed because chances are those first readers of the Gospel of Mark uh, who were Gentiles would not really care. Uh, let me put it this way. Uh, unless you were raised in a Jewish household and family, chances are that as you were first coming to Christ, as you were first learning things about Jesus, um, your, probably your initial response was, you know, what I really want to do is dig into some good Jewish history, you know? Uh, I, you know, I really want to know all the background and story uh, leading up to that moment in time and how those things happened. No, you were probably much more focused on simply like who is Jesus and, and how does that connect. And, and along the way, you realize that the greater understanding of that was rooted in the, that story of Messiah, was rooted in the Old Testament, and that that story is actually 
all of our story. It's not just a Jewish story. It is a story for the whole world. And yet, you know, the reality is for that, that first introduction, uh, most of us had very little inquisitiveness about the Old Testament, about the history of Judaism, or about the Hebrew Bible. And so this was written with an audience in mind who wouldn't have been focused on those things. Now, the other thing is, is that as we're looking at this biography and understanding that its themes are different, uh, I, I pointed out that uh, you know, even though the plot is simply the good news as promised by Isaiah the prophet, it begins in a way that is somewhat veiled. In other words, there is this hint, it is pointing to back toward that prophecy, uh, but the prophecy is not expounded upon. Instead, uh, as we go through the letter, there are signposts or clues that are being revealed, unveiled as we're making our way through the story. Again, you know, you and I reading it in the 21st century as Western people, uh, as living in a society that is full of Christianity, there's churches on diff, you know, almost every corner. Uh, even if you know nothing in detail about the story, you probably have some idea. And so there's implications there. But as they were first reading the Gospel of Mark in that early context, there would have been no understanding, and the idea of Jesus being the Son of God and things like that would have been veiled to the reader. So they would have been discovering it page by page, like any good book. When you read a really good, when you read really good literature, you are learning the story as you go, and with every page, there's an anticipation. Like, well, wait a minute, there's a story being told here, and I want to get to the end, and I want to discover what that story is. And that's why you turn the next page. Because if you read it and you kind of go, oh, this is just a remake of the, you know, this other story, and, and, and it kind of loses its fascination. But when a story is told well, it draws you in. You want to know, like, it, there's that, that whole thing. If you're a reader, you know, like for me, I can think of times where I, like, found myself up at, like, 2, 3 o'clock in the morning, still reading that stupid book that I was going to put down in about 10 minutes at 9.30, you know, and, and now I'm, and I'm like drawn and I'm like, oh, just one more page, just one, I know, I, I, you know oh no, you got to finish that part. I can remember my wife and I sometimes staying up and we had to be like up in just a few hours because our kids were really little and, and all that kind of, and, and it would be like two o'clock in the morning and we'd be taking turns because we were so tired that we wanted to go to sleep, but we couldn't go to sleep. And like we're like cheering one another on. And as you get like my voice would get tired, her voice would get tired. We just keep reading. Listen, that's what was happening. You and I miss that point because we just become over familiar with the story. We've become so oftentimes over familiar with the gospel that we've missed the story that's being told what's being revealed to us. In this particular way, the Gospel of Mark is hinting over and over again. That's why it's often referred to as the secret gospel or the mystery of Mark. It's also critical to our understanding of Mark that there is a heavy focus on the kingdom of God as both present and yet to come in its fullest revelation. Meaning that for now, the, 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 king, the secret kingdom is present. It's already in the life and ministry of Jesus. It's in the life and the ministry of the disciples. 
And it begins to make its way, but there is this sense in which we're being told that there is a fuller expression of the kingdom that would eventually overtake the world and ultimately fill the world in his final return. Today, as we look at chapter 3, we're wrapping up Mark's teaching on the authority of Jesus, followed by his commissioning of the apostles. Those two events are put together in a particular way in this gospel to tell us something. And then there is a shift in the telling of the story that occurs here in chapter 3, right in the middle of the chapter. Remember that what I've said before, these chapters were put in later. We sometimes called it in Bible college the drunk monk theory, like why did he break that there? Why did he start that there? Why did he put those numbers right there? And the answer oftentimes was simply that it, you got to the end of a scroll, you got to the end of something, and then they just like forced a chapter break or whatever else. It wasn't always in the terms of like context or good reading or whatever else. And one of the things I recommend to people all the time is there are actually versions of the Bible out there where they remove the chapter headings, which were added by the print company, not by the Bible, right? They're not in the Bible, those, those headings. Those are added in, made up. It used to be that, in fact, people wouldn't buy Bibles with those headings in there because they thought that they were being led astray by the titles and the headings that we so you know, depend upon. Uh, and you can buy it without all the, the chapters and the verse numbers, and you can buy it where it just looks like a book. Imagine that. And you can read it without all the, uh, the inferences that are made by those chapter breaks. And it'd be interesting, you will find that how you break up the chapters versus the way that monk broke up the chapters. Of course, he's also the same guy that said that the world started on October uh, 4th, uh, you know, and all that. So anyhow, it's important that you and I let it speak to us. And so right here in the middle of the chapter, there's a break we're going to use that break really particularly to set up some things for our discussion. But um, uh, nonetheless, right at verse 21, there's a break from talking about the authority of Jesus, uh, the passing of the torch, as it were, to the apostles uh, there early on. And then it jumps right into the teaching ministry of Jesus, which continues through the majority of the biography Hopefully those things will be helpful to you as you study on your own. With that said, we're going to go ahead and jump right into the text. Mark chapter 3, beginning of verse 1. If you're using a phone or tablet, please set that silent for the sake of those around you. I'm going to read from the ESV. Please follow along in whatever translation you have in your lap. That one's always my favorite translation. Let's take a look here. Mark 3, beginning in verse 1, and we read these words. And again, he entered the synagogue... And a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger and grieved at their hardness of heart and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. 
Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea, Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. And when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him, for he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You're the Son of God! And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. He went up on the mountain and called to him those who he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip, Bartholomew and Matthew, Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons he cast out demons. He called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, that indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whoever blasphemies, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him, and a crowd was sitting around, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mothers and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Blessed be the reading of God's holy word. So chapter 3 you know, opens with this healing in the synagogue on the Sabbath. And one of the things that stands out about this particular healing, uh, you will note as we go through the Gospel of Mark, is that he is uh, healing without a request. It's the only time you will see it in the Gospel of Mark. All other times there is an appeal by the person. Or there is an appeal by a family or friend, uh, you know, um, somebody close to the person. And at that point, Jesus will make some kind of reference to the faith of the person or the lack of faith of the generation or the need for a sign or something. But he will comment on the response. This one, now there are other healings where Jesus did, in fact, command the healing. Uh, but in the Gospel of Mark, 
It's used this one time. And so it's intentionally placed where it is, uh, in the manner that it is, to begin telling the story. He's making a point uh, because there in chapter 2 and right into the middle of chapter 3, he is building uh, an, an understanding of the reader that Jesus has the right, has the authority to do these things. And the point of his authority within this context is not that he's the Messiah. Let me say that again because that's probably something you've never heard before. But I want you to let it kind of ruminate in your mind for a little bit as we take apart the Gospel of Mark and think about why would he say that. In this particular instance, Jesus goes into the synagogue and it says they were watching him. Actually, the implication of the word there in the text is not like, you know, I'm watching somebody at the mall. It's a kind of watch where there's this sense of like they are hunting him. They are looking to find fault. They are looking for an excuse to go against him. They've had enough of Jesus already. You and I, now, think about this. We're just three chapters into the gospel, right? So, like, when you read in the other gospels, you realize that 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 kind of attitude toward him develops further along in the story. But Mark is telling us something. He's explaining to us the nature of the conflict between the Pharisees and Jesus, between the religious people and Jesus and his disciples. There is something he's wanting to characterize and that how this conflict is escalating and the reason that the conflict is escalating. The picture here is that Jesus, being fully aware of the situation, walks into the synagogue, sees this person in a a world of hurt. It it is affecting him uh, in a way that is hard for us to understand in the 21st century because if you are limited in some way in the 21st century, number one, we have a considerable amount of technology. Number two, we have rules like the ADA that are oriented toward protecting persons who have limited abilities for whatever reason. We have laws against discriminating against people in those situations. The, the, the situation in the 21st century is wholly different than it would have been in first century Jew, you know, uh, uh, Palestine. In that moment, like the idea and the thought process is number one, if you have a problem that limits you, that's a judgment from God. That's why in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus starts talking about who can be blessed, he's not saying it's particularly a you know, high position or authority. It's not that the goal is to be mournful. The goal is not to be you know, downtrodden. The goal isn't to be oppressed. The goal isn't to be broke. The goal isn't to be, uh, to be suffering. That's not what he's saying. He's saying in contrary to everything they understood in their day and time, those persons can also be blessed of God. Now, we have an attitude where we pick up the same thing. Even though we say we don't, it's secretly implied socially in America. Because if we see somebody go through a really bad streak of luck, 
or a really hard time, the first thing we say is, well, you know, you don't know what they did to probably deserve that. So if someone's homeless, we might think, what'd they do to deserve that? If someone is suffering physically, we might say, well, what did they do? We we have ways that we imply it. We don't say it because in our society, that's a no-no. You're not supposed to say things like that. But the truth is, is people imply it all the time. There, when Jesus was talking about who can be blessed... Who can have the good life? And he begins to say that, listen, people who are limited, people who have had bad experiences, people who have suffered, none of them are too far out of the reach of God to care for, to bless, to love. Jesus walks into the situation, and even though they're on the hunt, even though there are problems that are going to develop in the situation, Jesus sees him, and contrary to the way that the religious leaders were doing life, contrary to the way that society saw things, instead Jesus is moved with compassion. He sees him and he singles him out. In one sense, about to go to war with the Pharisees. But in a bigger sense, in a more important sense, that he's not going to allow their judgments, their behavior, their sinful attitudes, all of these things to determine his course of action. And so here, instead of waiting for him to ask, Jesus invites him to stretch out his hand. And in doing so, not only brings healing to this man that will radically change his life, but he also intentionally challenges the religious and social status quo of his day. It's interesting, if you and I were to uh, take a a little bit of time to do some research on the background uh, from that that time period, uh, one of the things that you would discover is that there was a great deal of debate in Jesus' day and time. Uh, For about 100 years before Jesus, it continued for another 200 or so years after the time of Jesus within Judaism, that one of the biggest debates, one of the biggest concerns of the day was, what is allowable on the Sabbath? Now, the reason this is kind of like dumbfounding is we've got to think to ourselves that we're talking about thousands of years of Jewish history have occurred, that the people have been a people, they've been wiped out, restored again, wiped out, restored again. I mean, there's like a ton of history all around this whole idea of keeping the Sabbath that is central to their identity. And yet, here's the thing, is that in the hundred years preceding the birth of Jesus, And for the next 200 years after his ascension, that the primary discussion in theological circles will be what's allowable on the Sabbath. It's the ultimate straining out of a gnat and swallowing a camel. It's the thought that let's argue about what rest looks like. And so there were rules. We have some books called the Mishnah and the Talmud. 
Can I get you to put that slide up for me? The Mishnah was a written record of oral tradition around the law that uh, was published uh, in the 2nd century A.D., uh, and it was all about the laws written, excuse me, 3rd century A.D., and it was a commentary on the law, and one of the primary topics that the Mishnah is, is wrapped around is what does it mean to keep the Sabbath? It even defined what was an acceptable walk on the Sabbath. Because if you were going to go to synagogue on Sabbath and you, you had to walk, like at what point does your walking to synagogue constitute that you've done work and violated the Sabbath? And so they defined what a, an acceptable Sabbath day's walk was. In fact, you'll see it referenced in the New Testament. The debate was already raging. And what they tell you in the Mishnah is, well, if by chance you have to do something else that day, what you could do is that because it was finally defined as the walk from your house to your synagogue, not to another synagogue, to the one that you're supposed to go to. That's the definition. So if you had to like pick something else up along the way, you could tie a rope to your door and then as long as, until you ran out of rope, you hadn't left your house. You know what's really messed up? Is that they actually, it actually was consuming thought that they put it on sheepskin. They wrote it down. An animal died. So somebody could write that idiocy down. And they thought it was brilliant. When you get consumed about what is it, what, when is the technical right and technical wrong of the things that we do, you're like completely missing the point. Don't we do that with all kinds of other stupid things? Like playing cards? Religiosity is full of rulemaking that becomes a heavy burden that crushes people. It's not a yoke that is light and easy, but becomes something that they themselves can't bury, can't carry, excuse me. In the midst of the situation, like, oh, and then the Talmud, you know, is, was literally a series of commentaries written on the Mishnah. So you have the Old Testament, then you have the Mishnah, and then you have the Talmud. You can buy a copy of the Talmud today. It'll cost you about $1,200 is what it'll set you back for a set of those. So that you could have a commentary on the commentary of the law to explain what the commentators meant back there when it implies, you know, for later on in your life, and then now actually you need to have commentaries on the Talmud, on the Mishnah, on the Bible. Are you exhausted yet? The full weight of the law. Hmm. So a great deal of energy was being spent on this debate, on defining what's acceptable and, and things like that. There's a great deal of debate on, in the midst of that that is valuable from the standpoint of what is the higher good. 
And what was ultimately agreed upon is that the higher good is the thing that triumphs in a moment. So like they said, it is proper that we would save a life and not let somebody die. That sounds like the most pragmatic thing. They could have reduced the whole thing down if they just like left it at that, right? They said, hey, you know what? If someone's dying, if you're on your way, you know, or you're headed to Sabbath, or you wake up that morning and someone in your house is dying, you probably ought to take care of them first instead of, you know, worrying about breaking the law of the Sabbath. There's the common sense triumphing. But then we have to have another discussion. Well, what constitutes saving a life? And so then they got into this complicated whole thing about, well, it's okay to pull your donkey out of the ditch or to save your cow, you know, because those things are things you depend upon to make a livelihood. And if those things were to die or to become injured so that you couldn't use them anymore, then it would affect your livelihood and could affect your outcome of your whole life. And so that was justifiable. You see how we're already going down the rabbit hole? And so Jesus very pointedly calls them out. He knows what's going on in the heart, and he asks them the question, is it right to do good on the Sabbath? He is literally quoting the rabbis of his day. Is it right to do good on the Sabbath? The answer for everybody in the room is, duh! And what do they do? They sit there the text tells us, Mark tells us, that what nobody else tells us. That he becomes vexed in his spirit because he's like, you're so hard of heart. You're so wanting to win in this moment. You so want to have a debate over stupid things. And here's this child of Abraham. Yes, it's not literally life and death. He's not going to die today because I don't heal his hand. But his life is very much in the balance. His ability to care for himself. You can see that it's worth your while to pull the donkey out. You can see it's worth your while to pull the, 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 you know, the other animals out because it affects somebody's life, their, law, you know, their, their ability to make a living and stuff like that. And yet you want to leave this man in this situation? You know, what he's trying to say without saying it is, what is wrong with you? What's wrong with you that you could love so little, that you could care so little for a person that purity of your doctrine is more important than the care of a person? We're not talking about violating the law. We're not talking about sinful behavior. We're debating about how good does it have to be before you would choose the person over doctrinal purity? That's what we're talking about. And his condemnation is, you're so willing to be doctrinally right that you would let a child of Abraham suffer. There's something really messed up about a religion that does that. The other thing is, is 
You know, as Jesus is talking to them about healing on the Sabbath, and it's not just really about the healing, but the reproach of the, the religious spirit and any other teachers, I want you to notice one of the things that's constantly said about Jesus throughout the book of Mark. It's said in the other Gospels as well, but it really stands out in the book of Mark because the thing they're telling us all the way, especially through chapter 2 into chapter 3 here, is that Jesus' teaching is unlike everyone else's teaching. And why? Why? Because it's not positional authority. The next time you get wrapped around the axle about messianic authority or our authority and power as Christians and everything else, can I just, I really want to draw you back to this point because this is really significant. The point all through chapter 2 and into this moment right now is simply this, that Jesus' power and authority wasn't because He was the King of kings and the Lord of lords. His power and authority, that's not been said yet. That's not been established yet. As He's establishing the why and the what for of Jesus' authority and power, it's because Jesus loves people and He cares them and He does what He teaches other people to do. The authority of Jesus is resident in His character, his nature. It's not because of who he was born to be. It's not because of, of all those titles that are mounted up that we will see unveiled as we read through the book. No, the point that Mark is making, the point that Mark is making, the reason he stands out from the Pharisees and the Sadducees who had titles galore, from the Herodians and from everyone else, the reason he has authority over Rome even though we will see throughout that those same titles that are attributed to Caesar are later attributed to Jesus, the point is not that he can heal because he's the divine Son of God. The point is not that he is able to teach with authority because of he was born in a major or to a virgin. The point is that he is like the person He's calling us to be. He is that person. The quality, the nature of Jesus that stands out is that He is good. He is kind. He is pure of heart. He is righteous. He is just. And the overflow of that is why people are getting healed. The reason people are hearing His words is because He lines up with the stuff that's coming out of His mouth. That's the power. And the fact that He's Messiah is Something secondary. The fact that he's king of kings and lord of lords becomes secondary to the telling of the gospel of Mark. It's not that it's unimportant. It's that what's important is who he is. Not by title, not by position, but by personhood. The God that you and I love and worship is the unchanging God Amen. who is not fickled like a man who doesn't change his opinions of us who loved us before the foundations of the earth were poured so that he purposed us in Christ Jesus that his attitude toward we are not pagans that we have to appease the gods and offer sacrifices to get noticed we're not the ones who have to dress up our fields dress up our trees and do all these other things and beg God to pay attention to us we're not the people who fast because we have to ask God do you love me 
No, we're the people who fast. We're the people who do these things because his character, his nature, his personhood begins to exude through us and it changes us. But it's not to convince him to love us. How much more could he love you than that? How much more does he have to prove his love for us than that he would give up the glories of heaven and surrender his own life? We're not like the pagans. No, we, we have a wholly different God who loves us while we were yet enemies. When Jesus is correcting them, it's, it's not about things that are forbidden. It's not about good versus evil, and the Pharisees knew it. It wasn't even just about good versus better. It was about being the kind of people that care, who love, who don't use their position, their power, their authority as something less than to serve. And so Jesus has this authority because he's empathetic, because his manner of life is congruent with his teaching. Mark is telling us Jesus' authority is not about his position as Messiah. It's not royal power per se, but it is the overflow of Jesus being Jesus. And that's why we get to verse 6 and the Pharisees leave the synagogue seeking for a way to destroy him. See, they're not leaving because he said he was the Messiah. They're not even leaving because he healed someone. They're leaving because what he is doing is in such contrast that it's already it's exposing them for who they really are. And so we get, as the readers, this clear juxtaposition between Jesus and religious authorities. Jesus has real authority that grows out of who he is, a life full of life that imparts life. Religious leaders, no power. You know how you know? Because what do they do? The Pharisees immediately go out and conspire with other people on how to get rid of him. You know why they go and conspire? They're powerless. They're powerless to combat him, they're powerless to answer him, and they are powerless to do anything about what he's doing. And so they have to go and plead with worldly authorities, with the Herodians that they hated. And the book continues to build all throughout the Gospel of Mark, leading us to this whole conclusion where eventually Rome and the, and the Jews all conspire together to deal with this guy because he's a real threat to them. Why is he a real threat to them? Why is he a real threat to them? Because he doesn't get his power and authority from the things that they get their power and authority from. Because his power and authority imparts life, and the best they can do with their power and authority is to steal life. Steal life from people by binding them up, by making it impossible for them to live. To kill by mistreating the children of Abraham so that I wouldn't allow them to be healed on the Sabbath. 
so that I can mound up endless religious laws, so that I can have position and power and authority that has nothing to do with imparting life. I can put you in jail. I can wage war. That's earthly power and authority. It actually cannot impart life. never does. We go to verses 7 through 12, and we see Jesus' authority again on display, not only through healings and the casting out of demons, but the people pressing in. They want life. They're, they're craving life. They're craving what religious authorities cannot impart. Then verse 12 tells us, because Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus would not let the demons tell people who He was. That part's the secret. Why is it the secret? See, it's no secret that He's healing people. I mean, they're watching it happen, right? There's thousands of people gathered around him. That's clearly not the secret. That he can heal? No secret. It's no secret that he's teaching people. I mean, even when they come to arrest him in the very end, they're, they're going to be the He's going to say, I wasn't I with you every day? I mean, was I a lesti that you had to come to me in secret at night? Do you know what that word lesti means? Was I a terrorist that you had to be afraid of me in front of a crowd? Was I not with you every day? It's no secret that he's teaching people. It's no secret that he's healing people. It's not a secret that he's imparting life or setting captives free. No, the secret is the thing that he doesn't want made known is who he is because he's establishing his authority not on the basis of his titles like the earthly kings, not on the basis of his position or power that's been given him by those titles. No, His authority is established in a wholly different way. His authority, His power is being established out of who He is, of how He conducts Himself. A few months ago, you and I learned of the death of Queen Elizabeth in the United Kingdom. Reading some of the things that were written by churchmen of England captivated me how among different denominations who had no loyalty even to the queen particular commented about how she was known for her character and her love of God. In contrast, her son King Charles, not nearly the caliber of person that his mother was, ascended to the throne by entitlement, by position. He is noble by title, ignoble in character. If it were not for the pronouncement of law, no one would assume Charles to be king. No one would think him noble except by title. His authority is on loan from his position. Mark wants to establish in the mind of his readers that Jesus' authority was not on loan. Jesus' authority was not granted by his position. Jesus' power and authority, his nobility of character, his personhood, his compassion, and his empathy grows out of who he is. Jesus doesn't need an entourage to run around telling everyone who he is, not even demons. He has established his authority by being noble, not by being called noble. Then through the rest of the gospel, Mark will make, you know, will not make any more effort to prove that Jesus had authority. Instead, it will just resonate deep within as we follow the storyline as it unfolds because instead, 
He will be able to poke fun at the titles of men and their false authority, but he will not have to prove anything else. Then verses through 13 through 21 establish the succession. The apostles now have authority. And why do they have authority? Not only has he given it to them, but they have been with him. They have become like him. They are becoming the kind of persons that they look like, smell like, act like, talk like Jesus. And what becomes the resident authority in them when he calls them into that place is not that they suddenly became something, but they were becoming all along. They've been following. They've been soaking up the life of Jesus. And now the life of Jesus is beginning to exude from them. And he picks them out among from all the other disciples because they are most the ones who are exuding that same heart, behavior, attitude. They are becoming like Him in contrast to religious leaders. Then verse 22 begins His first teaching in the Gospel of Mark. Remember again, Mark is not chronological. The first teaching directly tied to that first healing in Mark 3. The contrast between good and evil. The implication that real evil is the religious leader's love of their position over the concern of people. What is lawful to do? To give life or to take life? You and I could get wrapped up in the whole thing about Bells above, and whether or not, and, and, and why would they think those things? It's very intentional. The religious leaders claimed that Jesus was evil. You cast out demons by Beelzebub, by the power of Satan. When Jesus asked them, Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? all those questions are one and the same. What is good? What is noble? What is life? What is the good life? If your answer is, living, I'm living my best life now, you do not know the Lord. This can't possibly be your best life now unless you're going to hell. Please do not get wrapped around the axle When asked what is lawful to do, Jesus was pointing out what good is. You and I know what good is. You know, even the, even the most lost person in the world knows what good is. They know what kindness looks like. They know what mercy looks like. They know what it looks like when someone is walking humbly. They know what it looks like when someone is full of kindness and mercy for others. When Jesus asked them what's lawful, He wasn't asking them to define the law. And then He tells them, listen, every sin will be forgiven except the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Please, Don't get ripped out around the axle on that one because I hear people all the time come to me and say, Pastor, I'm afraid that I have committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. 
I, you know, I saw this TV preacher, and he was doing things, and he was acting like, you know, something that, and I, and I, I really, I, I, I just don't think that's the Lord. Number one, if you are worried that you might have blasphemed the Holy Spirit, you didn't do it. Because I can guarantee you, if you don't care, you have a problem. But if you care, you couldn't have done it. Because nobody who's blasphemed the Holy Spirit will care. First and foremost. But we get worried because he says, well, that's the one unforgivable thing. And we're thinking, well, what if, what if I did the one unforgivable thing? You didn't do it. If you're worried about it, you didn't do it. Please don't get, don't get tied up on that point. The one, those who blaspheming the Holy Spirit were already too far gone to care that they did it. Second, it was not a doctrine of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. The point was that they looked upon the healings, they looked upon these liberations, they looked upon the mercy of the Holy Spirit, and they called it evil. They called it evil. When you call good evil and evil good, So this isn't like you questioning if somebody's a phony or was sincere or whatever else. This was the level of depravity that hates good. This was preferring disease and sickness. This was hating any competition for prominence so that you would wish other people ill. See, they looked at him and they said, it's not good that he got set free. It makes us look bad. Really? I mean... I want you to think about the level of hatefulness and depravity that has to be in a person's heart, that they see a person healed, they see a person whole, and they go, well, I wish that person had just died. I wish that person had just continued to suffer, because now we don't look good, because we couldn't do that. That's some pretty twisted stuff. They saw Jesus heal a lame man. They saw Jesus raise the dead, cast out demons, and they called it demonic. They called it the work of the devil. They didn't ask if the healing was real. They weren't asking if it was a, you know, a disappearing headache or something like that. They just straight up called good evil. Please don't miss the point. This is not a theology of binding the strong man, although that has real implications for healing and deliverance, but the point really here is they were seeing healing and deliverance, and they rejected it. They'd rather someone suffer than for Jesus to get a win. Healing and deliverance are so deeply intertwined, as you and I will look through this and, and see, um, because you and I are a whole being. You're not just physical. You're not just spiritual. You have a soul, we are body, soul, and spirit, all three. And healing and deliverance involves the whole person, right? I mean, his life was changed, not just physically, but spiritually, emotionally. If we look at the whole witness of the Bible, the fall in Genesis to the closing chapter of Revelation, both fall and redemption, heaven and hell, body, soul, and spirit, it all goes one way or another. You will either all be resurrected or you will all perish there is no we don't have some bodiless heaven that's paganism it is a physical resurrection 
in the New Testament. So when we look at that whole witness, listen, when you get sick, doesn't your whole person respond? Not just your physical being, but your heart attitude, your spirit typically becomes low when you're suffering, when you are in the hospital, you know. And when you go someplace where someone is really physically ill in a major way, maybe they're dying and they're suffering emotionally and everything else, and you meet that person who breaks the mold, who in the midst of their dying like has this super great attitude, I'm going to go be with Jesus. And they begin to share and witness to the staff around them. Because why? Because they, they start to notice there is something significantly different in this moment because everybody else, body, soul, and spirit, who is suffering that kind of illness or going to that kind of demise, like their whole being exudes the pain and the suffering, those last minutes. But when you see someone who is living out of that and the Spirit of God is working in them and they bring testimony to that, there's something that stands out about that. Listen, it is normative that when you and I encounter the Holy Spirit, when you and I are filled with the Spirit of God, that it overflows and it manifests itself in our lives, body, soul, and spirit. I wish I had time to unpack that, but that's, I'm just going to have to leave it at that for right now. Last thing, verses 31 through 35, Jesus' family comes to retrieve him. Please note, if you want to find the first encounter with his family, you scroll back to verse 20. Verse 20, he was home, and they were inconvenienced by his ministry. They could not eat because there were so many people pressing in and making it difficult. And you know what happens when your brothers and your sisters are hangry. So they concluded, he's not well. He's out of his mind. He must be sick. He believes these delusional things. Then we drop down to the accusation of the Pharisees that Jesus is in league with Satan and the claim that he's casting out demons by the power of the devil. Then you and I come to verses 31 through 35 and we put all the pieces together. His family is essentially doing the same thing as the Pharisees. They've stopped short of accusation of him being evil but they are inferring that he's out of his mind, that he has a demon, and therefore is delusional and can't help himself. And they want everybody to just go away. The real point in Mark is this, that mother and siblings were outside of his ministry. That's what it says in the text. He said they were outside. It uses it in a very particular way. There are those who are inside, and those who are outside. And the clear message from the very onset is this. You are either inside and experiencing His power and His presence, His life, or you are outside and there is no middle ground. Not even family gets a pass. Which is, of course, the perfect setup for chapter 4, introduction of the parables. And that's where we'll be next week, but we don't have any more time. I'm over, already seriously over time. So let's, uh, let's stand together. You know, typically when we talk about authority, people are talking about position. And it's no less true, even in the church, when we're talking about spiritual authority, 
Assumptions around spiritual authority come from taking scriptures out of context and attempting to make demands of demons, illnesses, or something else. But as we've seen in the Bible, Jesus did not just rely on his position. He, in fact, Philippians 2, really hammers this home that even though equality with God was something within his grasp, he did not rely on his position or his right to power, but he humbled himself and took on the nature of a servant. It's talking about the way in which his spiritual power was exuded through him was not simply by title, not simply by propositional authority, but that it came with real spiritual authority that is available to the child of God. But it is best accessed through mercy, through justice and humility. Even the archangel Michael, who had plenty of title and authority, did not pronounce a railing judgment against Satan, but said, the Lord rebuke you. If you and I want to walk in the authority and the power of Jesus, we don't take shortcuts by claiming verses out of context. We do it in a manner that Jesus did and handed to his disciples, is that we live differently. We live in a place where the Spirit of God is working in us and transforming us, and it becomes the overflow of our walk with Jesus. We learn his ways and we walk in them. We enjoy his presence and we impart it. We develop in character, personhood, in the imitation of Messiah, and we love those that we pray for, not because it will make us look good, not because it will prove our point or our authority, but because our love and concern for the people opens the gateway for healing, for the casting down of demons, and for the setting of captives free. We don't get Pentecostal power by shaking, rattling, and rolling around on the ground. We get Pentecostal power from the indwelling of His presence, from loving Him, loving His ways, loving His people, and from being found trustworthy with a little that you might have more. And I know you can show me examples of exceptions like Samson, but listen, God didn't call you to be a Samson. He called you to be like Jesus. He called you to be His. And so, I would just simply invite you to that right now. Have the prayer team go ahead and come on up. Listen. Wherever you're at in your walk with Jesus right now, like the original invitation wasn't just for you to be forgiven. The original invitation wasn't for you and I to be better citizens. The original invitation wasn't that so our life would be easy or that we would have all the things we want. The original invitation was come and follow me, come and be like me. And that the overwhelming emphasis in the Gospels of why the disciples became the kind of people in Acts chapter 4 that were able to extend the gospel to the world. The reason why the gospel went forward through the earth was not because they had such a neatly packaged message. 
It wasn't because they took out millions of dollars uh, in advertising during the Super Bowl uh, and told everybody how Jesus gets us. No, the answer was that they became like Him and their lives spilled into the lives of other people. And what was the drawing card was Jesus, His presence, His power, and His authority living through us. That's the invitation, church. That is the real invitation, that you would come and surrender yourself to Him and to becoming more like Him. Father God, I just want to thank You for this morning and for our time together. I thank You for Your Word and for the power and the presence of Your Holy Spirit. Lord, it is our earnest prayer and desire that Your presence would be made manifest within us, that we would become the people of Jesus not because it's written over a, a sign on a door, not because it's uh, embroidered on my body through a tattoo or anything else, but because people around me experience Jesus by the way I speak, by the way I love, by the way that I give of myself. Lord, would you stir a deep passion in our hearts to be the people of Jesus, not just to be saved. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope you have an amazing week. God bless you. We'll see you next week. I hope you enjoyed our podcast today. If you did, there's two things you could do for me. First, subscribe to our channel. That way, the most recent podcast will always be in your feed, ready when you are. And secondly, if this ministry has impacted you, would you help us to continue to reach others by clicking on the link in the description to give now. Until next time, Thank you so much for listening to The Empowered Word.